Welcome to City Square Podcast, where we talk with everyday people about faith and work. My name is John, and if this is your first time uh, tuning in, uh, please take a moment to subscribe to the channel. Uh, please like the video, click the bell, and uh, leave a comment below. We're going to talk about a variety of different things, and as any, and as any questions or comments come up, uh, don't hesitate to uh, type those out and send them below, and we will interact with you down in the comments. Today, my guest is Rachel Ramey. She's a stay-at-home homeschooling or unschooling mom of five. Uh, she's been battling chronic illness for more than a decade. Uh, she's also a blogger, author, and an uh, entrepreneur. How you doing? Good, job. Awesome. Thanks for, uh, thanks for joining. Um, it's always, uh, I, I enjoy doing this. And so I'm excited about some of the stuff that we're going we're gonna to talk about. Um, we're in, uh, how many Facebook groups are you and I both in? <laughs> it feels like it feels like a lot at least five maybe ten or a dozen uh i'm not sure um but i think most of them are theology theology based right right or at least spin-offs from yeah, spin -offs, so yeah. theologically oriented people <laughs> right um like uh so i noticed that whenever uh like you actually like to start conversation in there and um you don't I just enjoy dropping like bombs and then walking off and just watching the chaos happen. Uh, like, do you like, so like you actually ask questions and you interact with the comments and that kind of thing. Um, I'm assuming that you and you enjoy that. You you like you, there's something you get from that interaction that you, that is valuable. That's a little bit I different do. than how most people do. Well, I hope so. I mean, not not that I hope that it's different from other people. I hope that I'm not about dropping the bombs and, and just walking away. Um, no, but I, I think we need to stay teachable. So it's good to learn from other people. It's good to to listen, to understand, and not just, like they say, listen for our opportunity to talk. So I appreciate the back and forth, the pushback and, and having my own ideas challenged, being forced to articulate them more clearly, and then a lot of times having other people introduce ideas or perspectives that maybe I hadn't really given a lot of consideration to. Nice, nice. Is there anything like that you held firm to that, that very that recently you've been maybe starting to question or has been challenged? Well, <laughs> Okay, th this could be potentially a little bit awkward because my husband and I are not on the same page on this one at this stage of the game. But um, we were always firmly credo Baptist. And after years of discussion and debate and whatever online, and in addition to some study, but some offline study that was prompted in large part by those online discussions, I have come to embrace credo Baptism. Oh, dang. No. Okay. No, like I said, my husband still doesn't. So the way that I like to put it is I'm paedo-baptist, but we're credo-baptist. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's the way that we practice in our household. But that's probably one of the starkest examples I have of online conversations that really significantly changed my thinking on something. Okay. Is there like any particular scripture that has uh, been in? influential in that? Yes and no. This is maybe actually a little bit surprising too. Um, and actually, there's a little bit of an irony in this too. The tipping point for me was not, I think, what most people's tipping point is. 
Mike and I were having a conversation about this. Michael is my husband. We were having a conversation about this. We were talking through the different ways of thinking about it and, and why one side comes to it a certain way versus another and whatnot and how really ultimately both sides are in an argument from silence. Like there's not a verse yeah. anywhere that says you shall baptize your babies. You shall not baptize your babies. There's some degree of interpretation going on for both sides of that equation. And so Michael in commenting on that said something about how there isn't a verse anywhere in scripture that tells us who to baptize. And that's what he meant. And so, I mean, as far as that goes, he was absolutely correct, but something about the way that he worded that clicked in my brain. And I thought, well, Actually, we kind of sort of do have one, the Great Commission. That's the only verse we have anywhere in Scripture that actually tells us who to baptize. Like, everything else is narrative. It's not didactic. Right. That's the only passage we have, and it says to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. So who are we baptizing? The disciples in the nations. And so that that was the verse that, ultimately clicked in my mind was well disciples my kids didn't choose to be disciples they're disciples because they're here they're part of our household hmm. we tell them they're going to church we tell them we're doing family worship in the evenings we tell them this is what we do in our house they are under the teaching and the authority of the church because we put them there not because of any kind of decision they made and so of course there comes a point you know, down the line when they're old enough that if they chose to, they could say, I don't want to be part of this anymore. I'm, I'm leaving, but they would have to actually make an active choice to walk away later on, as opposed to having to make an active choice to come be part of something that they're already part of. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Um, I am not, I'm not there yet. Uh, I'm still credo Baptist. Um, I'm still credo. And so, but like I tell anybody who is not being a jerk, <laughs> I was like, if you go ahead and if you want to change, if you can change my mind, go ahead and change my mind. Like I'm, I'm open to it. Um, I like to, I like to think that I'm not so arrogant, hard headed, hard headed that I'm like, I might have some confusion or error along the way. So like, if you can change my mind, go ahead and do it. Right. Um, I'm not there yet. Uh, but I feel like I understand, um, a pedo baptism probably better than I have in the past. Yeah, and well, so, and like, I think that that's where my yeah. husband is too. Like, I, he's, he's, I can, I can see the argument for both sides. Yeah, but I was like, I used to like pedo, like the pedo baptism, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian, uh, like understanding of baptism was for the longest time for me was like the weirdest understanding. I was like, I understood like Lutherans and Catholics better than I did that. And so, but I was like, after a few conversations I've had recently, I was like, okay, it's not as silly as I actually thought it was. Um, and so like y'all, um, so being, um, uh, best where y'all were both under, y'all both had an understanding of a credo Baptist baptism. Um, I take it y'all go to a Baptist church. We're in kind of an, in between place right now <laughs> we always yeah. did go to a baptist church previously he's actually he is an ordained southern baptist minister right although he's not currently actively a southern baptist pastor excuse me but um after we left our 
last church for reasons that, that I won't get into. We've been looking for a while, and the church that we've been part of most recently is a CREC church. Oh, okay. Um, for the sake of the conversation, uh, what is CREC? Let me see if I can get this right, because I always forget what the C is for. Because <laughs> um, it, it started out, it was the Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches, and they changed the C. It's not Confederation anymore, but I can never remember what it stands for. Co cooperation or something like that? And it, it's not a hard word, but I forget it every time. Is it the... Uh... Communion of Reformed Evangelical that's Churches. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> um, I'm kind. I've, I, I know it from like hearing people talk about it. Is that the, um, the Doug Wilson thing? Yes. Okay. All right. So highly controversial. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought it was. Okay. Um, because most of my uh background has been like in the evangelical space so like i could i know what sbc is i know what pca is like i know what right. all that kind of stuff is but over the past couple of years i've been becoming more familiar with like uh crec and and stuff well and the crec is relatively new yeah i mean not not like the last five years new but i want to say like maybe in the last 20 25 years I'm not sure exactly when it started, but it's younger than I am. Uh, 1998, so yeah, 25 years. And they've got a, roughly 100 churches. And growing, it sounds like. I think so, yeah. Like growing fast, but fast is relative when you're talking about 100 plus churches. Right. Um, and so um, now our... CREC churches, are those all Presbyterian? Actually, they are the only denomination I'm aware of that accepts into fellowship both Credo Baptist and Pado Baptist churches. So okay, that's it's a mix. Huh, okay. I think the majority of them are Pado Baptist, but as you can probably imagine, they tend to have overall, um, I guess, like more grace or understanding for the folks that aren't Pado Baptist because they have actual churches within their own fellowship that are Credo Baptist. Okay. And just to, this is late. I do this all the time. Um, for anybody who doesn't understand, um, Credo Baptist is the belief that is the belief that you baptize people who have confessed faith in Jesus. Uh, Pado Baptist is when you believe that you should baptize your uh, babies and children. Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, and so like your, your husband has a, was, was, uh, used to be an SBC pastor. Uh, y'all both used to be a, a Credo Baptist. Um, what is like your, like, I guess your faith journey, like how did you come into the faith and like, what has it been to get you to where you are now? Right. Um, so I grew up in a Christian home, um, non-denominational primarily, but my dad was in the army when I was little, so we moved around a lot. And that means that we kind of went to a variety of churches. So um, we have been in Southern Baptist churches in my childhood. I don't remember whether we ever actually were members of a Baptist church over the long term. Um, some kind of charismatic leaning churches, some Assembly of God, some non-denominational. There's 
kind of a spectrum there. So mostly what you would consider to be fairly conventional, mostly Arminian, um, credo-baptist, largely Southern Baptist-ish in terms of their basic theology, I think, but not necessarily always denominational in nature. Gotcha. Okay. And so when did you, um, how did you get from there uh, to being somebody who was theologically reformed? The internet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I married a Southern Baptist pastor. Um, well, I, let me back up a little bit, first of all, and point out that um, we were never particularly systematic, I guess you would say, in our theology. But my parents, my dad in particular, were really, really good about emphasizing the supremacy of Scripture and pointing okay. us back to Scripture and having a lot of um because deep conversations, we could ask the hard questions. He was never threatened by questioning, you know, why do we believe X, Y, Z? You know, are you right? His thing was always, if I'm wrong, then I want to be shown that I'm wrong. And scripture is the standard. So we had a lot of conversations like that when I was growing up. And I was very grounded in scripture itself, although we were never... Um, like we didn't use catechisms or extensive confessions or, or anything like that. So going into my marriage, I was scripturally grounded, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I had a particularly systematic understanding of a lot of things, theologically speaking. And then I got married and because my husband was on staff at the church, I didn't have a lot of people to look up to as a young married woman, because like I was the one that people were looking to. Um, right. It's just, it's, it's kind of a thing when you're one of the pastor's wives that people kind of expect you to have the answers and have it together. And they don't expect you to be coming to them with questions. Yeah. And so I found my circle of mentors primarily on at the time it was email lists because we didn't have, you know, Facebook and things like that. So it was email lists. And that was my first exposure to the idea that not everybody within Christian Orthodoxy has the same ideas on these things. Like one really good example is I had no idea up to that point that Everybody within orthodoxy didn't have that kind of how Lindsay pre-mill, pre-trib rapture kind of view of the end time. I thought that was it, that either you believed that or you were like, I don't know, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons <laughs> or something. Like I, I literally had no awareness of the idea that there were other views out there until I started encountering BLS, these other women. I was like, oh, <laughs> there are other ideas out there. So that's the most obvious one to me, but there were others. So like, I know, for instance, I couldn't tell you what specific issues came up, but I know, for instance, that was the first time I'd ever particularly been in company of Presbyterian ladies. And so it just kind of was a subtle, like not, they never at any point tried to talk me into any kind of particular theological view. We weren't even having particularly theological conversations at this point. We were talking about 
householding things for the most part, or you know, general Christian living. But it became this exposure to the idea that there are other ways of thinking out there. And, oh, people that baptize their babies don't all baptize them for the same reasons that Roman Catholics do. And just kind of generally starting to get me thinking and reading and talking about other ideas that were outside of that particular bubble that I'd been in. Okay, nice, nice. Um, I think one of the things you said that I think is valuable and unfortunately actually probably uncommon is that like you grew up in a household where you were encouraged to ask questions yes. and uh, think critically and uh, that kind of thing. Because um, from what I from what I've seen and experienced with most people is uh, that's not actually common. And uh, a lot of times parents don't like it when their kids ask them questions right. or push or like when I say push back, I don't mean like aggressively or authoritatively, but it's like where they're like, well, why do we believe that? Why do you believe that? Or like right. a lot of times parents don't like when their kids ask them why right. they, get, they get told, well, it's because I said so. And that's good enough. Right. Like that's like not in a rebellious sense, but in a, yeah. a help me understand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize how radically uncommon that is in the Christian community until I started spending a lot more time online and was realizing that all of these friends of mine who also grew up in Christian homes, that was not their experience. And right. I think there's kind of a generational, like a cyclical perpetuation of that, so to speak, because I think what happens is parents don't really understand why they believe what they believe. Yeah. So when the kids ask the questions, they don't have answers, and that's scary. Then you don't want to consider, well, if I don't have an answer, maybe it's because there's not an answer to be had on this thing, or maybe it's because we're mistaken. And so then you end up telling the kids, well, it's just what we believe, because it's what I said, or because it's what the pastor said, or whoever is ultimately the, the source of the beliefs on this. And so then you end up with those kids that grow up, not knowing why they believe what they believe, except that because somebody said so. And so then what are they going to do when their kids ask? It's, it's the same thing over and over and over again. And But I watched my parents live that out, the, the flip side of that. So I watched them come to recognize things or believe things or understand things that they previously hadn't and change to come in to line with whatever that new thing was. So they were, they were themselves clearly teachable and learning and growing. And so it wasn't a threat to them to have us ask the questions because if, if through our conversations with them, they had decided that something they believed was wrong, they would have just changed and adjusted do you think that, like, so, because basically what you're, what you just said is that this is a, a generational thing that's been probably going on, that's been going on for a couple generations, at least. Do you think that's kind of plays a role in how the church has gotten to the point where um, people, like, people seem to have a disdain for theology? Well, it's like, well, I don't know, like, 
well, all I believe is, well, just give me Jesus and nothing else, or no creed but Jesus, or I love God, but I hate theology, or like the increasing amount, or at least what appears to be an increasing amount of like churches with pastors who give sermons that are not trying to like teach people rich theology, but are more focused on like being relevant and that kind of thing. And do you think that's kind of helps cultivate us to where we're at now? I don't know. It's probably in part. I think that, I think that's kind of a complex issue and there's probably multiple things that play into it. I mean, societally, we've been training people for a while now to not think. Just, I mean, just in general, we're training yeah. people to not think. And so when you ask people to do theology, really, you're asking them to think. <laughs> and we kind of got people going, well, I don't want to do that. That's work. There, man, I was just, I had a, was watching a podcast recently and um, they were complaining about why it's like nobody wants to, nobody wants to think. And like, and they were talking about how people have been trained and taught not to think. And, but like, they also, on the flip side, they also confess that like, thinking for yourself is exhausting. <laughs> well, and it's especially exhausting in a society that punishes people, really, for thinking yeah. for themselves. You're rewarded for just going along and you're harassed if you think for yourself. And I mean, that makes it exhausting even apart from the actual effort of the thinking itself. No. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, because like, if you don't even not just not even rebelling against like whatever the main narrative is, like just asking a question that questions the main narrative, like there is, you're going to get attacked from like every single direction. Right. And like, even if you're not even, even if you're not rebelling, you're just asking a question about it. Like people, like it's gonna, you're, you've already got a battle going on. Um, and so, like, yeah, like it's exhausting, like internally and like externally at the same time, uh, mm-hmm. because like we've been, we've been saying for like decades upon decades, like this is what's been cultivated, and like it's where we're at now. With that being said. Uh, why did why has uh, why has homeschooling been important for y'all? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, the, the primary reason that we started out homeschooling is just simply because we think that it's it's our responsibility to train up and educate and disciple our children, and we don't want to delegate that to somebody else. Which is that we don't want to delegate that as a whole to somebody. I don't want somebody to misconstrue that and think that like. We think that nobody else can ever teach our kids anything. But in terms of like the overall responsibility for raising up and educating our children, we just, we don't want to delegate that to somebody else. Um, And of course, the government schools in particular today are just a mess in so many different ways. But it's also really important to us, (laughs) like you'll hear people accuse homeschoolers of indoctrinating their children. (laughs) And I always say, well, it depends on what you mean by indoctrination. Yeah. There's kind of multiple levels of definition to the word indoctrination. And to some extent, somebody is going to be indoctrinating our children no matter what. That's non-negotiable. The only real question is who's doing it. But in terms of 
what people usually have in mind where they usually are thinking like a sort of a mindless brainwashing. What I'm looking for is actually the opposite of what we were just talking about. I don't want kids who grow up thinking or believing X, Y, Z because somebody told them to. Yeah. And the reality is that is actually what's happening in public schools. The public schools are being told this is what you're supposed to think because everybody believes this. Everybody knows this because it's what we said, because it's what the textbook says. Don't ask why. Don't ask where the evidence is. Don't ask questions. Just believe it because we said so. And I don't want that to be the case. So obviously, I hope that in the long run, my children believe more or less what I believe. And I think all parents want that. Even the ones who say that they don't want to influence their children's thinking ultimately are hoping that their kids are going to think like they do. Yeah. But I'm hopeful that my kids will believe more or less like I do because they have determined that what I believe is true is true. Because they've measured it against other alternative options and they found the alternatives to be wanting. So I hope they end up believing what I believe because I'm right and because they themselves have determined that that's right. Not because, well, my mom says this, so I'm supposed to think it's right. No, I mean, like, the reason that what you believe are things that you hold firm to and what you believe are things that you believe are important enough that you would actually believe them. Right. <laughs> and so like, it only makes sense that you would want the people that you love and care about to believe the same things that you believe. Right. Um, the idea that, well, I don't, care, I, don't, I don't care if my family believes the same things that I believe. That's doesn't, that sounds like that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound right. very caring. Um, because like the things that I hold, I believe are things that I believe are important and I believe I'm convicted about those things. Um, and so like, yeah, like, I mean, I mean, yeah, go ahead. It's kind of a weird denial that what they believe is a belief. So like, for instance, if I believed that parents just need to let their kids come to whatever faith they want all on their own. That itself is a belief. Right. Those people hope that their children will grow up believing that parents should allow their children to come to whatever faith they want all on their own. They're just not recognizing or acknowledging that the things that they believe are beliefs. They're just not the same as my beliefs or your beliefs. Right. It's like when you say, um, like saying, I don't believe in theology, I just believe in Jesus is in itself like a theology. Right. Um, no creed, but Christ is a creed. Um, an ath- claiming to be an atheist is in itself a theology. Um, right. And so I just, it's weird how like we're at a point right now where a lot of most, a lot of people uh, don't understand what words mean <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and like there came a point where i eventually found out 
that a lot of the weird stories you hear about in schools and the news and on podcasts and stuff were not just random one-off occurrences, but the things that are happening like everywhere. Right. Um, like, like I've lost track of how I've, I've one is too many, but I've met more than one uh, parent who's had, who took their kids out of school because they were put in litter boxes and bathrooms mm. uh, because the, the teachers were, teaching the, the, the kids that you are a furry or that they were having those inappropriate uh, books like in the library and their homework assignments were just like ridiculous. Um, no, it's like, mind boggling how many places there are that parents have been shut down or kicked out of school board meetings yeah. for trying to read out loud the content of the books that's in the schools and the school boards are saying, this is not fit for public consumption. You can't read this here. That's the and point. To me, I'm thinking that should be a slam dunk, obvious. Like if, if you're going to tell a parent that they can't read this in the school board meeting because it's inappropriate to be read in public, that should be an automatic. Okay. So it's out of school. Yeah, that should be. Simple. But they don't. And it's, and it's, and that's happening in multiple places. It's just, it's amazing to me. Like, that should be a very simple decision. Like, that shouldn't be controversial. Like, we shouldn't, like, I agree that is not fit for public consumption. I agree that should not be read at a school board meeting. But that's also, that's why we're reading at the school board meeting. Uh, because, like, like, that should be a very easy resolution. Right. Um, but it's, a lot of places it's not. And that's just, it's disturbing. And... And so, like, I'm glad that um, I'm, like, an anti-government guy to begin with. And so, like, I'm glad that people are, like, there's more kids being homeschooled than there has been in yeah. probably ever. Probably at least part of the past century or so. Um, and so, like, I'm, I'm excited when I hear about it. Um, I'm glad that more parents are, like, taking control of their kids' education, um, that they are teaching them. Um, I hope that they're doing it well. I, I really do. Um, because like everybody's met the awkward homeschool kid. Um, and like, I hope that a lot of kids are, their parents are doing it well. Um, and so like, um, I know that there's a lot more resources out there today than there was when I was growing up, like in the nineties. Uh, there's all sorts of different co-ops. This is all sorts of different online uh, resources, like, and all that kind of thing. Um, and so, like, I'm kind of really excited to see, like, in 10 or 20 years, like, what's it going to be like? Yeah. Uh, that should be, that should be really, that's, it's encouraging. It's going to be interesting to see how that shakes out, though, because we also have, with the, the overall growth of homeschooling, there's also a big shift in the dynamic where you didn't have a lot of homeschoolers in the 80s and into the 90s, but the people that were homeschooling then we're usually homeschooling because of really deep convictions. They had a really solid grasp of what the legal threats were and what it would take to preserve those rights and that kind of thing. And homeschooling, because it's become so much easier overall, just thinking in terms of um, like legality and access and things like that, we have a lot more, I guess, higher percentage of homeschoolers now 
who are homeschooling, not because of any kind of deep conviction or without a sense of how easy it would be for the government to just come back in and undermine those rights and those kind of things. So it should be really interesting, I think, like you said, in 10 or 20 years to kind of see how those things end up balancing out. Yeah, because it's like it's gotten to the point where it's not just um, people with religious convictions. Um, It's also not just like people who are just like extremists against the government. Um, It's like your average person in the United States. Um, There's people that are politically on the left that are like homeschooling people. And of course, people on the right. Um, There's people who have religious conviction. There are people who don't really care. Um, Like there's all sorts of different kinds of, of people. And so. Um, it'll be really, int- I'm really curious to see what's going to look like in 10 or 20 years. Yeah. Um, what is, uh, unschooling? So you're going to get probably different definitions if you ask different people about that one. Um, for us, unschooling just means that we live life together with our kids we largely trust that by living life, they are going to learn the things that they need to learn and or you know, depending on what it is, come to a recognition that they need certain skills and seek them out and, and learn them that way. But it happens rather organically. And so we don't need to create artificial learning opportunities because we believe that kids learn naturally without being forced. So like y'all, I mean, does that mean that y'all don't have like a curriculum? Mostly it means that, yes, we have, we have some curriculum stuff here and the kids can make use of it when they want. Some things are just easier to learn. I think through like a formalized type thing or whatever. So for instance, we have all of the life of Fred math books. I have two girls right now who are working their way through those Life of Fred books, but I didn't assign them to them. One of them decided she's going to go through the books because she just likes math. She did not get that from me. Um, (laughs) And the other one is not especially one that enjoys math, but she determined that it's necessary and important. And so she's working through it. So both of them have been working through this entire series of math books, and I haven't had to fight them on it. Hmm. to force them to sit down and do lessons or whatever. But I think one of the biggest differences for me is that we don't create a hard distinction between what is an educational activity and what is a non-educational activity. Because in real life, we learn things through all kinds of just crazy sources. I mean, I've learned from browsing Facebook, why is an eggplant called an eggplant? I had no idea. Saw a picture circulating on Facebook. I was like, oh, that's why we call it an eggplant? (laughs) Or um, I found myself one time, I came across somebody's profile, uh, again, on Facebook, and I saw something about her location, and I thought, that sounds like it's from New Zealand. I wonder if that's from New Zealand. And then I thought, why do I know that? 
and I realized I've been reading some books, just like stupid fluff novels, the kind of thing that like beach reading type things or whatever that you would, nobody would call them educational. I wouldn't call them educational. Just reading them for fun, mindless stuff, you know, when you want to relax. But they're set in New Zealand. And in the course of reading those books, I got a feel in my head for what the Maori language sounds like. And that was a really eye-opening moment for me to think, we have this idea that kids can't be learning when they're doing things like playing computer games or whatever. That's that's the big one I usually hear people call out as, oh, my kids aren't doing anything meaningful. Um, but, but anything, really. We think, oh, my kids aren't learning anything because they're not doing a math lesson or they're not sitting down analyzing sentences for grammar or whatever. But... I learn things all the time and I learn them in really bizarre, unexpected places that I would never in a million years have said, oh, well, I'm going to go do something educational right now. If they don't hate it, they're not learning. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I have to ask this question. Why is it called an eggplant? Because when it's young, it actually looks like it has eggs growing on it. The young <laughs> eggplants are actually like small cylindrical, not cylindrical, um, elliptical or whatever, um, white things. And then they grow into the big purple elongated things we know of as eggplants. I had no okay. idea because I've never grown them. Yeah, same here. Now I, need, now I want to go like no, I want to go look it up. Um, so basically what y'all are doing in unlearn and unlearning is y'all are trying to make it as organic. Unschooling. 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 Yes. Now that's, this is an important distinction because unschooling is not unlearning. Oh man. <laughs> I'm not trying to give you a hard time. <laughs> I'm taking advantage of that to point out that yeah. that is probably the big distinction that people think about. People assume that if you're not schooling, you're not learning. Gotcha. And that's kind of the whole underlying ideology that we're really trying to challenge is that you have to be doing schooling in order to learn. Okay. So it's the idea of unschooling is like y'all want it to be organic as possible. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. Like you want, the, your goal is to figure out, okay, like, how can um, I put my the, my kids in situations where they want to learn more as opposed to when they're fighting the idea of learning? Right. So and sometimes way, I yeah. think it's not even that we have to create opportunities to learn or whatever. Kids learn anyway. Like we're hardwired yeah. to learn. We have to largely retrain ourselves to recognize that learning is happening more than anything else and just kind of get out of the way. Yeah. So here's an example for you of the other night we had a conversation and, and this is how a lot of our learning happens in little bits and pieces like this, rather than necessarily super long lessons of any kind, whether formal or informal. But we had a conversation last night. Two of my girls were saying, I don't remember how it originally came up. They're looking at a recipe or something, I think, and it called for some kind of Italian pasta. I don't know how to pronounce it. Fusilli, something, I, I don't know, something like that. I'm not, um, I'm not that cultured. I wasn't part of this original conversation, so that part is a little bit lost on me. 
as I was hearing about part of this after the fact, and they were saying that they looked up, okay, so why is it called whatever it was called? And apparently the word in Italian means rifle. And the kids looked at it and they said, well, that doesn't make any sense because just noodle doesn't look like a rifle. So then we had an entire conversation about, okay, well, why is a rifle called a rifle? What's the difference between a rifle and a musket? It's about the rifling inside the barrel of the gun. So maybe the pasta isn't actually named after the entire firearm. Maybe the pasta is named after the same sort of like screw type shape that is the rifling in the rifle that also gives the rifle its name. So these are the kinds of conversations that just kind of naturally come up in our household all the time. Not always conversations about words, but little things like this where we didn't force that to happen. They were looking up a recipe and they said, well, hey, why is this? noodle called what it's called and it created this entire chain of events that ended up with them talking about linguistics and one language versus another and etymology and firearms and the history of firearms and it's it's a whole thing and nobody made that happen it just yeah did but but those sorts of things happen all the time and we just don't think of them usually as being important. And those are the things that you remember. Exactly. Yeah. Um, kids are going to remember some random lecture from a Tuesday in a classroom. Uh, but they'll remember that fun conversation. Right. That where y'all had a bunch of probably like a fun, fun rabbit trails. Uh, y'all probably laughed. Uh, you looked up these random things and like, like all those different kind of things. Like they'll they'll remember like all that. They'll remember that stuff. Exactly. But they're not going to remember the random lecture. Exactly. Um, and the rabbit trails were a lot of what ended up with our transition to unschooling. We, we weren't always unschoolers. We've always homeschooled, but we weren't always unschoolers. But what would happen is, for instance, um, I remember when my now twelve-year-old and ten-year-old were kindergartenish. And, uh, and because of my illness, I'm, I'm not a very good morning person. I don't just mean like I don't like mornings, but it's, it's difficult for me to get going very quickly in the mornings. My body doesn't handle mornings well. So sometimes by the time everybody was finally ready to sit down and do school for the day, they were already involved and engaged in something where they were learning organically. And I just, I couldn't bring myself to interrupt what they were naturally doing to learn. To say, well, no, you have to stop that because we have to do this other thing that's written in the program. That just, something about that just felt really wrong to me. So we were kind of hit or miss for a while. But that's one of the things that I don't like about when you're using curriculum. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with curriculum per se. I mean, I don't have any kind of like moral stance against <laughs> curriculum or anything like that. But that's one of the things that, that on a personal level just kind of always bugged me about it is you feel like you can't chase the rabbit trails. So you might be pushing through 
three weeks of stuff where everybody is dragging their heels and you're fighting the kids over it because nobody wants to do it and they're bored to tears. And then you get onto one day's lesson and the kids are fascinated by it and they want to just delve in. And you feel like you can't because you'll get behind. You have to keep going because the curriculum says you're supposed to move on to something else. So it feels like it stifles the natural curiosity and their natural wiring to make their own connections between things. Those kinds of connections that because they made them for themselves are the things that do stick with them long term. And so I felt like I was really being constrained by the curriculum to spend time on stuff that none of us cared about. I, didn't, I as the parent, didn't even care about. We're just doing it because the book says <laughs> we're supposed to or because society says we're supposed to or whatever. And because we were spending so much time and energy on these things that nobody in our household really cared that much about, we weren't having, we were running out of time and energy before we got to the things that we really were interested in or passionate about and wanted to spend time on. And so that just didn't make any sense. Seemed kind of upside down to us. And we said, well, so let's try taking away all of the rules and all of the expectations and all of the, the shoulds and coulds and, and oughtas where society says, this is what you're supposed to do. And again, don't ask why. You're just supposed to do it because society says you're supposed to do it. And the kids have really flourished since then. Nice. It's like it's like the to-do list for the curriculum took up so much of their mental bandwidth that they didn't have anything over when all was said and done to do even the things that they generally enjoy. And so when we took all of those expectations away, they actually did a lot more, not even just in the areas where you would think that they would. For instance, uh, my my oldest daughter had, I think, I think she maybe had just finished high school officially. It might have been her senior year when we made that full-on switch into unschooling. And that next summer, she read history books all summer. Jeez. I spent her entire high school years fighting her to read anything about history. She hated it all. She thought it was all boring. She loves mythology. She wasn't a fan of history. Like, none of it. But she but when loved we took all those expectations away, she spent a whole summer studying stuff that we would say was educational stuff. I mean, by, by normal mainstream standards, we would say it was educational stuff. Yeah. But she had the mental bandwidth for it at that point because she wasn't busy trying to check off a list of what I'm supposed to do. Hmm. I think it was inter interesting that she liked mythology but hated history at the same time. Yeah, she's always loved <laughs> mythology. It's because it's about story. Yeah. She oh, okay. loves stories. Right. This is my my oldest daughter is a novelist, so uh, fantasy and speculative fiction novelist. So story is her thing. Okay, that makes sense. Which, which then, then you get into why. Well, I mean, history done well is stories, but it's history most, done the way the school does it. It's timelines. It's yeah, it's timelines and it's dates and it's dry facts. Yeah, 
that was actually why I hated history for the longest time. Um, and I remember actually having conversations with my parents and my teachers at one point because I hated history. Like I got C minuses in history because I was just so boring. Um, and it was like, so as soon as like the teacher like told you to make a timeline on your piece of paper or whatever, like I would just lose it. Um, I was like, I don't care about timelines. I don't care about these dates. I don't care about this stuff. And like, I had the hardest time paying attention. And that's Um, the key. I think is when it's just the timelines, you don't have any reason to care about it. The timeline is a really valuable and often really interesting tool when the timeline is the place that you plug into the stories that yeah. you know. And you're going, okay, so when did this person live in relation to that person? Because now you care about this person and you care about that person. Or when did this story take place? Well, I mean, whether it's a real life story or, or even whether it's fiction, this, you know, this movie that we enjoyed or this novel that we read that was set in a historical time period okay when did that happen who was the king then those things start to take on meaning when they're related to somebody's actual story that you cared about and not just well in 1492 columbus sailed the ocean blue (laughs) and that's probably just about the only history date i could give you just off yeah. the top of my head, and it's because of the little rope poem. Like, I remember um, in Texas, they you have to take a standardized test or whatever, and they call it something different every three or four years. I don't know what they call it now. But I always remember, like, I always knew I was going to get one question right because, like, when I took the test in junior high or high school, they always would ask you, when was the War of 1812? So I was like, I always knew I wasn't going to get a zero because I was like, I know the answer to that question. <laughs> you know, it's scary. Have you seen those um, interview on the street things where folks go out and they, they're asking yeah, I'm, just random people? I'm determined to believe they're fake. It's shocking sometimes some of the questions that people get wrong. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> that's why like I keep telling myself I was like they're all fake. I was like they're all fake. I was like I just keep telling myself like they're they've got to be fake. <laughs> we can hope, right? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna keep hoping they're all fake. <laughs> um you had mentioned earlier that uh because of the, your chronic illness that you have trouble um with mornings. Um would you mind sharing what like what it is that you've been battling? I, I can, but it's a little bit hard to articulate. Um, I, okay. I don't have anything specific diagnosed. Like okay. I don't have like fibromyalgia or anything, at least not that we know of. Um, primarily, I have a lot of digestive issues that we haven't been able to get to the bottom of. So okay. there are very, very few foods that I seem to digest well. And of course, if you can't eat and digest food, then you're lacking in energy. So then yeah. there's a lot of fatigue. Uh, so, so that's really the heart of it. Digestive issues, a lot of fatigue, sometimes nausea. Tell people I usually feel pretty good as long as I just don't eat. But obviously, that is not a sustainable solution. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's not long term. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. And you said it's been going on for over a decade, right? Yeah, I think. Okay. Like fifteen, sixteen years, something like that. Has um, having to deal with that, like how has having to deal with chronic illness 
like have you had to like reshape your faith or anything like that? Oh my goodness. I think I've had to reshape everything. <laughs> yeah. Um on a on a just a practical physical level, it makes a really big difference. It makes a difference to our day to day, just everyday ordinary things. Obviously, it's hard for me to even to to do things like it's hard for me to be on my feet for a long time because it takes energy to be up and around. Um, certainly, it makes it difficult to do things like scrub in the bathtub or something like that. That's really physically intensive. Um, doesn't seem like it necessarily when you're really healthy, but some of those things are really energy intensive. I, I describe it to people this way. You know, like sometimes when you have the flu and there's that, that day or two afterward where technically you're not sick anymore and so you feel like you should be able to do all of your normal things, but it's like you get up and you go to the bathroom and you fix yourself some breakfast and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm like ready to go back to bed. That's what most of my life is like. <laughs> so... Oh, um, so it makes it really difficult to, in just the general day-to-day -day practical stuff, because I can't do a lot of the things around the house that previously people were counting on me to get done, which means Michael takes up a lot of slack, which means that he's doing all of his work. He's doing a lot of what we would normally consider my work, which doesn't leave a lot of time and energy left over after that. Um, the kids have had to step up and do more sooner than maybe otherwise I would have expected of them. Um, it makes a difference then relationally and, and I, don't, I don't quite know what's the right descriptor, like personality wise or something, I guess, because I'm a very go and do kind of person by nature. I was very active. I, I grew up as a girl scout. I went camping. I went hiking. There's, I enjoy doing those kinds of things. And I can't do any of that anymore. Like, I'm lucky if I can take a walk around the block. Okay. On a good day, I can take a walk around the block. On a bad day, that might just be too much. Um, so it makes a big difference in that, too. I've had to completely, this will sound really crazy, but it's like I've had to really completely relearn what do I enjoy doing. Because if you had asked me, okay, well, stop and think about what did you enjoy doing as a teenager or when you first got married? Well, I can't do any of those things. Or I shouldn't say any of those things. I can't do most of those things anymore. So I'm having to start all over again, kind of finding things that I can enjoy doing when I'm not very good at being still. That it's That doesn't come naturally to me. I get bored. And so then in the bigger picture from all of that, particularly because of all of those kinds of changes, it's been really hard to tell people I learned that God was sovereign and then I've had to learn all over again that God is good. And that is honestly something that I still struggle on bad days or on yeah. bad weeks. Like, you know, we have scripture here that tells us if you, them being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give you the things that you ask for? And he's talking about things like, you know, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion, a snake, something like that. And I'm thinking, God, I'm literally here asking you for eggs and bread. And you're telling me no. And you're telling me that even... Evil human fathers 
would give their kids the egg and the bread. So if you're not giving me eggs and bread, like, what am I supposed to think of that? What am I supposed to make of that? And the reality is I don't have answers to that. And the church, honestly, by and large, doesn't have answers to that for me. We just, we don't know. We don't, It's beyond our understanding. So that has been a real ongoing struggle, feeling like we're, we are not only feeling like we're wrestling with these things, but feeling like we're wrestling with things that the church doesn't care to invest the effort in wrestling through with us and for us. So we're kind of, feels like at least, kind of on our own trying to, you know, like I'm in the mire here with you, Mike. And the, you know, like we're all each other has in this one sense kind of struggling together. And we're like, and we have questions and nobody else is trying to help answer us. It's like, well, I don't know, figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Sorry, I just, I think, made that really heavy. <laughs> like I just sucked all the air out of the room. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, we just went through uh, Psalm 119 uh, this summer. And uh, it seemed like a pretty good chunk of uh, Psalm 119 is uh, the psalmist talking about his uh, the affliction that he's endured in his life. And... Um, it doesn't give all the answers for like his affliction and suffering. Uh, but what you see in the, uh, in the Psalm is that through the affliction and the suffering, it somehow in some supernatural way uh, draws him closer to God. And it doesn't like, it doesn't give us all the answers as to why, but one of the, one of the whys it does answer is that uh, the affliction made him more faithful and it made him trust God more it made him lean on God more. And it like, it just in, in every way brought him closer to God. Yeah. And so like, and uh, in one sense, like we don't actually have all the answers to the why, but we do know that like what I, from at least that one Psalm is that affliction is not, is, is not wasted, but it's good if it brings you closer to God. But if yeah. it does, if it doesn't, then it is in a sense uh, wasted. Yeah. Um, that doesn't answer everything, um, but it does answer some things. Yeah. Um, but like, it is kind of hard if you're asking for bread and eggs when you think you're getting a dud. That is that is difficult. Yeah. Um, and these are questions I think because chronic illness is hugely on the rise. There are questions I think that the church can't afford to not keep wrestling with because we're alienating people. It kind of goes back to some of the things we were talking about earlier where people feel like the church doesn't have answers. If the church doesn't have yeah. answers, why are people going to want to come to us kind of thing? And and again, not that we have to have all of like the complete pat answers or whatever. But yeah. I think that we need to be willing to have answers at least in so far as being able to say, well, I don't understand everything but God or yeah. we don't see the big picture, but God sees the big picture and he knows how all of this, we have to be willing to wrestle through it with people, I guess is what I'm getting at. And if we're just yeah. wanting to give them like the trite platitudes and send them off 
they're going to decide that we don't have anything for them. And so by extension, a lot of them are going to conclude that God has nothing for them and they're going to go somewhere else. Cause like, I think on what you just said, I think we can be like, we don't have to have all the answers for everything. It's not a realistic expectation. I think it's okay for us to say, I don't know, but it's not okay for us to just say, I don't know, shrug your shoulders and just say, maybe you should just pray about it. Right. That's not acceptable. But like, we can say, like, I don't know. And like you said, wrestle with the person with it. And then also be like, also say like, like, how can we, is it, how can we serve you and help you through this? Right. Um, like, I may not have the answers, but like, at least I can go through it with you. Right. And be willing to go through it with you. Like, I think um, instead yeah. of, honestly acknowledging that we don't have the answers and that it's hard not having answers we want to pretend like we have answers when they weren't actually answers at all and that doesn't serve people because it just makes people feel dismissed i did a uh an episode with a lady named uh, carrie baldwin and one of the things that we talked about in that episode was about how it's it's okay to say i don't know and how, like, a lot of times the church could would benefit from saying, um, I don't know, instead of just neglecting. Because saying I don't know is not neglecting the issue. Um, neglecting the issue is not caring. Right. And, like, I don't know doesn't have to be I don't care. I don't know. It could be, like, I really don't know. Um, but maybe let's figure out together. Or I don't know. Like, let me walk through it with you together. Um, and like, there could be, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of wisdom, uh, in some of that. Yeah. And I think it comes back to what we were talking about earlier, that people don't like to acknowledge that they don't know or understand everything. Yeah. It's easier to tell people to just stop asking questions than to acknowledge that we don't have full understandable answers. I mean, kind of like we said, like think like we said earlier, like if we can, um, if we can convince people that they shouldn't know or they shouldn't ask, then it it's it's easier to be lazy, but it's much more costly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and like, and if you if you cannot learn how to like to to think forward and and ahead, then you then you just can't see that. Um. And I think there's also something to be said about how there's a reason why I think the scriptures teach people to pursue like humility. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of humility uh, to be found in a place where questions are asked and things are challenged that force you to be, to, to realize, man, I'm not, I don't know it all. I don't have it all uh, together. Um, maybe I need to go and um, figure some things out. Or also maybe I just need to become to terms with the fact that like I maybe I just there's some things I don't know and I need to be okay with that. Right. And I like, need to be going to come to that terms. we're not God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're not on a level with him. And like I think a lot of pastors are for a lot of different reasons, because every denomination tradition is different. Uh, but um, a lot of pastors are afraid to tell I think Peter congregation I don't know. Uh, because they're afraid of what the consequences could be of saying, I don't know. Yeah. 
well, if I don't have all the answers for people, then what good am I to them? They'll just get rid of me and find somebody else. Um, and so like, there's, there's a lot of reasons for a lot of that stuff, but I don't think any of those reasons are ultimately good enough. With that being said, that was an accident. Um, so I, I know from previous conversations and from interaction on, like on we've had on Facebook that like you have some issues like with how the church handles like gender roles and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so for somebody who like has issues with that, uh, how do you fit well in a CREC church that is known for like being patriarchy friendly and that kind of thing? Actually, I would say that probably the CREC is one of the most comfortable places that I fit to. Um, okay. I'm in one of those places, and, and there are people, I've, I've actually heard this said recently, that that this must mean that you're wishy-washy or mediocre or on the fence or whatever. I'd, I like to think that it actually is an indication of balance. I find that I have people in one camp who call me by this extreme and people in this camp who call me by this other extreme. So I consider myself a proponent of patriarchy. Okay. Obviously that means that more feminist leaning types don't like me, but a lot of folks in the patriarchy camp don't like me and would say that I'm very feminist because I ask questions <laughs> and I ask questions that aren't always particularly comfortable. So I think I'm trying to think what is the best way to kind of summarize or encapsulate this. I believe that the Bible teaches patriarchy because I believe that the world is inherently a patriarchy. We have God father who I've said before, patriarchy actually is the gospel. Not in the sense that like, like, like don't read that backward. <laughs> but the gospel is the message that God the Father is redeeming for himself a bride and raising up children. That he places his name on them that he lovingly leads them. That is the gospel. That is the story of the world. It's the actual fundamental design of the world that we live in. That's patriarchy and it's unavoidable. And so the design of the household is supposed to reflect that. But I think that where we miss the boat is that patriarchy is about a set of principles and a basic structure that has within certain boundaries a lot of flexibility in how it's actually played out in day-to-day -day life and we have in many cases actually tried to take the idea of quote-unquote patriarchy and make it into sort of like a a particular set of tasks that are assigned to this person versus assigned to that person and made it into this weird rigid thing where we're confusing principles and practice and getting them backward from each other. So I believe, for instance, my husband is to be the head of my household, period. Like non-negotiable. 
but that doesn't necessarily translate to, okay, there's one exact way that our general day-to-day household operations have to go because otherwise that's not patriarchy. It depends. It depends on the man. It depends on the woman. It depends on the household dynamics. It depends on things like I'm chronically ill. I have a friend whose husband is chronically ill. Both of those things create a whole shift in the household dynamics and who is able to do what and who is fitted to do what. And we can adjust to those things without losing that fundamental underlying structure that the husband is the head of the home. But um, in a lot of cases, we've jumbled that somewhere along the way. And so we have this idea that patriarchy or um, complementarianism have to mean that this is what men do and this is what women do in all circumstances, no matter what other factors are in play. And it just, it makes the mess of things. Okay. So... I want to make sure I understand some of what you said correctly. So your husband is the head of the household, period. That's what it is because that's by God's design, correct? Correct. Now, what you are also saying is that there's liberty in what that looks for in every every different household, correct? Yes. Okay. Now, where does the liberty end? Is there, say, is there, is there a place where we can say that there is liberty here? But like this is set in stone. I would say for the most part, no, because if you have the principles right, if like if you're pulling the right principles from scripture, then anything you live out that actually upholds those principles is acceptable. But people don't like you raising the questions. So let me give you an example. Um And I think I should probably say this before I get into this so that nobody is just automatically jumping to conclusions. I think there are norms of things that are in most cases the most effective way of living out those principles. And so if we start to see them not being the norm anymore, we should start to ask ourselves what's really going on here have we lost sight of the underlying principles but that they're not the absolutes we sometimes make them to be so for example and this is the kind of thing that i get grief for asking because i don't think i'm questioning what scripture teaches but there are people who would contest that we have a lot of people who will say well obviously women are not permitted to work outside the home or at least wives are not permitted to work outside the home because Titus 2 says that they're to be workers at home. Okay, but let's look at the context here. The immediate context, the larger context of scripture, the historical context, all of it. Women are to be workers at home. Okay, in contrast to what? This wasn't written in 2000. The corporate world was not a thing in their world. They weren't looking at a world where this was a question of, okay, well, are the men going to go work in a high rise somewhere on Wall Street and the women weren't? That just, that's completely anachronistic to the text. That's very modern. 
Right. We're talking yeah. about this was written in a culture where most work was home centric. Right. Hers and his. Right. And so the thing that's being contrasted here is not women should be workers at home as opposed to being workers somewhere else. It's essentially saying, I think, to paraphrase here, mind your own business and take care of what is given into your hands to do. And we see that, I think, more clearly fleshed out if we look at the passage in, I think it's in First Timothy, where he's talking about the widows. And he talks about not taking the younger widows onto the widow roles of the church, but expecting them to remarry. And what he describes of the young widows when they remarry, we can logically infer is what he expects of all young married women. And he specifically tells you that it's because if they weren't married, they had this inclination to go gadding about from house to house, gossiping, getting into lousy theology and, and all of this other stuff because they weren't at home minding their own business, doing their own work. That's the issue at hand. That's an issue that Paul actually addresses of the men too. When he says, but the one who doesn't work, let him not eat either. He's talking about men who are lazy, hanging around, doing a bunch of dumb stuff, wasting their time, getting into trouble instead of doing the work that it's their responsibility to do. That's, that's not a gendered thing. And so this is an instance where I think we have made an absolute law that scripture didn't make an absolute law. We've missed the actual point in the process because really, honestly, let's face it, especially when it comes to the internet, we have women today who are stay-at-home moms, but they're gadding about on the internet, gossiping, causing trouble, and getting into bad theology, and it's causing the church trouble. So we've right. kind of missed the boat on both sides of that by thinking that we're just being faithful to the scripture when really we're being faithful to the scripture plus tradition. But with that said, if somebody is looking at that and for instance, hearing everything that I just said and saying, okay, so see, she just said that I can just go be a nine to five career woman, put my, throw my kids in daycare and go have a 40 to 60 hour a week career, whatever, and that's no big deal then we've also missed the point because we've missed the principles. So there are questions here like, are you taking responsibility for the things that God gave you, gave into your hands to do? Are you honoring your husband? Are you loving your husband? Are you loving your children? Um, I had something else. Oh, um, what kind of position does it put you in, in, in terms of having to submit to other men who aren't your husband. there are, We have all of these biblical principles that we are supposed to be faithful to and that we are supposed to operate by. But that requires that we think for ourselves. <laughs> that requires that we actually put in the effort to work through the principles and consider the, the principles and our individual circumstances and actively evaluate what is most God-honoring in this situation versus just asking, well, what's on the, the may-do list and what's on the may-not-do list and this is what good Christians do and this is what good Christians don't do. 
it's easier that way, but it's not necessarily godlier that way. I don't know where to start. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, that was, that was all really good. That was all actually, when I say really good, I mean, really interesting. Um, And so, There we go. Okay. So, okay. Um, so I actually, I appreciated how you're addressing the character when you're, uh, that Paul's addressing, when he's talking about, uh, when you were addressing the woman, right? He's addressing, addressing uh, like the, the character, like gossip and slander and, and that kind of thing. And then you like are also addressing like the character when he, uh, when you're addressing the men. Like being slothful and unproductive and and that kind of thing, um, and so also I think one of the things that you mentioned that you mentioned that I think is actually really important that most people don't understand is that the way that we're trying a lot of people who would be in the patriarchy or complementarian uh, camps, what a lot of people miss is that what the way that we're trying we very loosely are trying to organize family in the home is actually very, very modern. And yeah. throughout almost all of it's only been maybe like within the past hundred years or so that we've actually tried to uh, assemble like the family in the, in the home like that. Um, Cause even like in the frontier days of the U S for most families, everything was out of the home, uh, right. the farm, the ranch, like everything came out of the home. Um, like, and it's only been as we've developed corporate, uh, Western civilization has become corporates and then by default more of the rest of the world is when we tried to do, uh, organize the household as well the man goes off for eight plus hours of the day and the woman the, the, the woman stays home with the family by herself to raise the, the kids for eight plus hours out of the day um, which I would argue is not ideal I know like we try right. to tell people it's ideal today um, but like you cannot convince me that it's ideal for kids to be raised by a mom 100% of the time and a dad 20% of the time. Yeah. Well, and even beyond that, sometimes we don't even get that because we have largely removed in most cases, we've removed most of the meaningful work outside of the household. Yeah. And then we're still telling women they have to stay at home. And then we act surprised when women say, well, it's not, it's not fulfilling to be, a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home wife, I feel like I'm just the maid in the shop. Well, because a lot of times she is. If education is taking place somewhere else and childcare is taking place somewhere else and the economy is taking place somewhere else, it's like we have ensured that only the, the logistical grunt work is left and, and we're telling women, well, that's yours. And then we wonder why they don't feel like they have a meaningful purpose in the home. We've taken everything that means something out and yet told her that she has to stay there. Again, it's not 100% across the board. I don't want to imply that every family is like that. But culturally, this is an issue that I think a lot of times we overlook, that a lot of times when women are saying, I feel unfulfilled at home, that's actually a legitimate complaint it's an it's it's she's recognizing that something is actually broken 
and and it's not her. She's not she's not the broken thing. There sometimes there's that too, but sometimes <laughs> there's sometimes there really is an actual problem that women are acknowledging, and we're just missing it because we're so accustomed to seeing things operate that way. There there can be meaning in all of those things, and again, don't get me wrong. I don't I don't mean to say that cooking for your family doesn't have a purpose, or that changing diapers doesn't have a purpose, or something like that, but. We have in a lot of ways really divorced the tasks from their purpose and then acted surprised that people don't feel purposeful when they're left with only the tasks. Can you expand on that? Um, maybe a little bit. Okay. So like I've heard people say before when I've talked about this kind of thing that th they'll say, no, I am called to change diapers. I am called to cook dinner, whatever. And I've said, but not really, we're not. In a manner of speaking, but not exactly. I'm not called to change diapers. I'm called to love my kids. Now, living out loving my kids a lot of times looks like changing diapers. But there's an important distinction here, because what happens is if you say that a mother is called to change diapers, that now says nobody else is allowed to change the diaper. She has to do it. That task, you have now made that task her calling or her identity. But the task is not the calling. The task is just the means, now, like I said, it's important means. We can't just say, oh, well, I don't have to change diapers because I'm not called to change diapers. It's, there's a nuance here. There's a balance here. But I have to be able to recognize that my calling isn't changing diapers. It isn't cooking dinner. It's loving my family. And if the means of loving my family is changing my kid's diaper 20 times a day, then I change the diaper and I should be changing the diaper cheerfully and joyfully and understanding it as an act of service to my child and to ultimately to my husband and to God and whatnot. If it looks like cooking dinner every night, then I should be doing that joyfully. But I should also recognize that if assuming we had the money to do it, hiring somebody to bring us dinner isn't necessarily not loving my family. It's not necessarily neglecting the thing we're called to do because I'm not called to cook dinner per se. I'm called to love my family by whatever means are necessary for loving my family. And that's where we get into, there's a lot of liberty in what different households have to look like. I'm called to respect and honor my husband. What does that look like? It might look different in my house than your house. Here's another really silly example. I heard a while back, somebody said something about serving the husband's dinner first as a, um, an act of deference or whatever. Oh, right, right. And I don't remember where I heard it, so I don't want to put words in their mouth. I, I don't know that they were necessarily saying that everybody has to do this or anything like that. They were just pointing out that that is a thing that can be an act of deference. And it struck me that it's really interesting because at the time I was actually doing the opposite for the same reason. So 
we had small children at the time. The kids don't want their food to be too hot because they feel like it burns their mouths. My husband likes his food hot. I intentionally dished the kids' food first and my husband's food last for practical purposes so those just cooled off. And also because then I make sure that my husband gets the hottest food. Now, again, I'm not saying everybody has to do that. This is, this is not any kind of needful thing. All I'm trying to do here is illustrate the fact that I might dish my husband's food last and somebody else might dish her husband's food first. And in both instances, the motivating factor is expressly, intentionally expressing honor toward that husband. But it looks different because the circumstances are different and the needs are different. Um, man, I had this conversation, a similar ish, similar conversation with somebody recently. Um, how, so like in our culture, uh, you're supposed to let women walk through the door first as a form of like adverse respect to, to women. Right. Right. And they were talking about how like, well, actually there's in a different culture, the men are supposed to walk through the door first because it's their job to make sure everything is safe for the woman to walk mm. through. And then the men will walk through. Today, not pre- maybe not so much today, but maybe 20 years ago, if a man walked through the door before a woman, people would get like a weird, like it'd be weird. It'd be awkward. There'd be a right. weird look. Um, because like out of respect, you let the woman walk through first. And so um, so I think kind of like what we were getting at from the beginning is like the the – I guess the theology that is the same, but how we practice that is going to look a little bit is all is going to look different for for everybody. Right. The principles um, are what matter. Right. The principles are going to play out in practice differently in every situation. And just because a a, a woman who like as a housewife is restless, uh, dissatisfied or whatever, it doesn't mean that there's and it's a, it's inherently something wrong with her. Uh, what you're saying is that there could be something that y'all are building her and her, the husband, her and her husband are building, cultivating that may need some correction possibly. Right. She uh, may be recognizing an actual lack. Yeah. And I've also found it really fascinating too, that historically conservatives in the church have said that it's across the board wrong for women to work outside the home for pay but almost none of those same people would have the the issue with her doing volunteer work outside the house for the same number of hours. <laughs> Even I mean, I, I know churches that would actually encourage women to put their kids in childcare so that they can go do ministry. Okay, that seems. Good. And yet, those same churches would probably tell women that they shouldn't be working outside the home because it. So there's been something. There's been a disconnect there. I think for a long time where people were really not being particularly consistent in their application of that passage. So I think a lot of that is not, there's no way that, so none of that is obviously rooted like in scripture and it's probably not even rooted. It's not, it's not rooted in scripture. And uh, that's just stupid. (laughs) Well, I think what happens is, Because most of us, there are a handful of people here and there, I guess, that are exceptions. But most of us, to some extent or another, we got our our theology handed down. Yeah. 
So even if you're a person that came to faith as an adult, probably when you started going to church, you started being told what you're supposed to believe and why by somebody who got it from somebody. You know what I'm saying? Like there's there's some hand-me-down something in that that's just, it's unavoidable. And I think that what ultimately happened is most of us had our theology handed down to us in packaging that what we kind of got was people's theology, their scripture and the interpretation of it kind of all together as one thing. And we haven't always successfully recognized where one ends and the other begins. So how much of what we think is just biblical theology is actually, I don't know, like 17th century European culture <laughs> that that was largely a Christian culture. I mean, they certainly had biblical influence by and large, but those things got intertwined and it got entangled and it was passed down to us as a package deal. And I think that we don't always make the effort to disentangle those things and recognize what is actually the scriptural teaching itself and what is just their practice of it that made sense in their cultural context. Yeah, I mean, that probably makes sense because uh, like there is probably a cultural context where some of that stuff probably fit. Um, like whenever, um, for example, um, like when you look at like a, like when you learn read about some of like a, like our our pastor ministry leaders like from the from the past, um, you'll I mean like you'll see for example like uh, Spurgeon's wife uh, was really active in the, in the community and uh, she cared a lot about the the literacy rates of kids and such, and so she was really big on um, gathering books for for kids to make sure that they would they would grow up and learn how to read. Um, and like, that was kind of like, like when, like her, her, her big, her big thing and her big ministry, like she didn't have a, a job like outside the home or any of that kind of thing. Uh, but she was really big on like that ministry, gathering books for kids and, and such. And like, you'll find that like a lot of, like, you'll see like, uh, some of the reformers wives, they probably did, they did similar type of things. Um, and so, but like, I mean, that was also just like, there's that's their culture is night and day from, from ours. Yeah. Um, in fact, it would probably be to do like something like that in our culture would probably have to, would probably be nearly a full-time job. It might be. Um, and well, like, you, and then too, I think like how, how I was saying, I think there are norms that when we start to see things get totally upside down from that, we probably need to ask ourselves if we've really lost sight of something somewhere. Yeah. So for instance, if you have one parent who goes out and works elsewhere and one parent who stays at home, there are good solid reasons that the overwhelming majority of the time, the mother is the one that stays home. Men don't get pregnant. They don't birth children. They don't nurse children young children in particular have a need for their mother in a way that they don't have a need for their father. So there is a principled kind of logic. Yeah. If you have that dichotomy in the dichotomy going a certain direction, we should expect that if we have a culture where one parent works and one parent you know, outside and one par parent stays at home, 
then most of the time the mother is at home. Right. For If we start seeing that be backward most of the time, we probably should start wondering if we're missing something. But at the same time, if you then say, well, because that's a thing, that's an absolute. And so now this household that doesn't have any young children anymore, but the husband has health issues. And so he can work out, work you know, from the from a home-based type of a job, but his wife has the physical ability to go and work somewhere else. They're not allowed to reverse that because the household with babies would have been foolish to do that. We've just started jettisoning our principles for some kind of weird, rigid legalism. Right. It, man, I was, I had a hard time behaving when you said that men don't give birth and have babies. <laughs> 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 We're still allowed to acknowledge that truth here. <laughs> um, so you're a um, a rebellious feminist patriarchal woman. You have a blog yeah. and you've written books and you do that type of thing. Um, you have two webs. You have two blogs, right? Yes. Uh, would you like to share with the real quick? Well, not real so quick. I but have. Like, um, share but what I, what I think of as my main blog is Titus2Homemaker.com. So this is right. Titus and the number two, Homemaker.com. And that's kind of an across the board general homemaking thing. People have told me over the years, you got to niche it down because you know, that's what you do with a blog. And I'm like, but, but, but I can't because everything is literally related to everything else. There's no way to split some of that up. Um, so it's, it's all the things, cooking, kitchen, organization, worldview, parenting, homeschooling, all the things. Um, but I also have a second blog, which is not super active right now. I'm trying to be better about picking that back up. It's naturally dash holistically.com. And that one is specifically for natural holistic health stuff so that it didn't so totally take over the main homemaking blog that people who aren't particularly interested in the health stuff felt like, but I don't want to read all of this stuff. I wanted recipes and organization tips. Gotcha. Gotcha. And like, um, so you also have like herbal remedies and that kind of stuff, correct? Yes. And there's a little bit of that on the yeah. main homemaking blog, but okay, heavier emphasis on the other one. And like uh, people can, people can't subscribe, but like if they like your work, they can go on there and they can do the whole buy you a coffee type kind of thing, right? Yes. Nice. And um, how many books have you written? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like, are they, is it, are your books the same topics, same subjects? Yes. Uh, well, mostly my books are kind of all over the place. Um, they mostly all touch on those things. I do have a few actually that are more like paper crafts, journaling type yeah. related, which is kind of a, a fringe thing. I guess I would say on my blog, I touch on it occasionally, but it's not really a main thing. Uh, but that's the one thing that kind of gets off topic, I guess, from what my blog is about. Mostly my books are in the same kind of vein. Gotcha. 
Okay. And uh, all of them are on Amazon, right? Pretty much, yes. Okay. It's like everybody can go to Amazon and find them. Cool. Word of warning, though, if you search for my name on Amazon, you should see all of my books, but not everything that you will see is actually mine. There are a couple of authors with the same name or with similar names that are writing, I don't know, like memoirs or something and fiction and whatnot. So if it looks like, wait, this doesn't go with everything else, yeah. it probably isn't mine. Just in case, because I haven't read those other books and I have no idea. They give you about anything. Cool. All right. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Um, I always enjoy our interactions and our conversations, whether they be right here or like on Facebook and stuff. And like, I've always enjoyed that you like uh, asking questions and trying to dig dig deeper and get to the root of what it is we're talking about and um that you actually think critically and so it's, it's always it's always fun um for everybody else uh we'll go ahead and link uh rachel's uh, socials and her blogs and her books below if you want to go out check those out follow her um check out her blog support her snag up one of her books like i said that'll all be uh linked below with all of our socials and such um but for everybody thanks for joining us and if you enjoy the conversation, just like I said before, uh, don't forget to like the video, subscribe, click the bell, and uh, like. please do not hesitate to leave any comments, uh, ask any questions. Uh, if there's anything you want to dig, dig deeper into, maybe you didn't think we covered something well enough, uh, don't hesitate to, uh, to drop something below, and uh, we'll, we'll get with you. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.